Um, but we're going to talk about patience. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to James chapter 5. And I titled this message, The Trouble with Patience. How many of you here was, this morning would classify yourself as a patient person? Anyone? Okay, Dave is a patient person. All right, Dave, you can be excused. <laughs> what I define patience, well, don't leave yet. Let me see if it lines up. The ability to accept, delay, trouble, or suffering without getting angry or upset. There's been said that patience is a virtue possessed by few and sought by many. And we live today in our world that champions the word instant. I was just talking about this with Tom before, right? Tom, we were talking about internet. And I was like, you know, our kids will have no idea what internet is like or what it was like because you don't know what that sound of dial-up is. You know, my kids are like, why isn't this working quick enough? I'm like, you don't understand dial-up. We, we live in a world that champions the word instant. We like things to happen quickly. And, and so we don't want to wait. And, and I sometimes find myself praying for patience as if God was going to infuse me with this special trait. And, that, and then I wouldn't be unaffected by trying circumstances. That's not what patience is. And the book of James here, he, 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 he's done so much as he writes this epistle throughout the entire book of James, so much for, for me in my life, exposing um, my greater need for faith in James chapter 2, exposing then the failures of my speech in James chapter 3, and then in this morning, exposing the lack of patience that God needs to continue to grow in me. And, and I want you to know this morning, please know that I am a man in moment-by-moment moment need of rescuing grace of my Redeemer. And you're hearing these words this morning as a person that same kind. We need God's grace. So before we dive in, before we see what James has for us, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, I thank you so much for the privilege I've had to come and worship with these brothers and sisters in Christ. To sing and to lift our voices. Rejoicing in your holiness. Rejoicing in your grace and mercy that you've just shown us in many ways in our lives. The privilege we've had this morning, Father, to, to join together as the body of Christ and celebrate communion, to remember your sacrifice for us on the cross. To join together as the church and to give back because, God, you've given us so much. And now, Father, the privilege that we have to look into your word, and we ask that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher. God, please help me to stand aside and allow you to be the main focal point of this morning. I pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. It's been said before and by someone else, and this is not original with me, that we're called to live in the middle. And what I mean by that is that we're living in the already and the not yet. We live in the middle. Jesus has already come to live on earth. Jesus has already died to pay for our sins, but not yet has Christ come back for us. We're not in heaven yet. We've been called to live in the middle of the already and not yet. We're called to wait. 
And as you look at James chapter 5, I want to look here because I believe in these short verses, it's incredibly important for us to understand and see what James has for us. So look at James 5, verses 7 through 11. He writes, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Waiting is not what will come in the end. Waiting is what you become while you wait. And God's goal always in waiting is for a radical change of your heart. And waiting does that. And so James begins this little passage, this little section, with an admonishment. He says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Just like those believers that James is writing to, we we do not know when the coming of the Lord will happen. It's a very popular topic in the New Testament with over 3,000 references to Christ's return, which equates to one in every 13 verses. It's talked about a lot. The Bible just overflows with the return of Christ. And in all actuality, it probably wasn't just Christ's promise of his return that made those believers ache for it. It was the trials and difficulties of their life. James' scattered Jewish church was being beat down, slapped around, mistreated, abused, and kicked around the Mediterranean like a soccer ball. And they're longing for heaven. I've noticed, though, most of my life in the church, you usually don't hear, I can't wait for Christ's return when things are going well. Right? You know, all of my needs are being met. My kids are obeying me. My employer treats me well. In fact, they're paying me too much. The IRS says they owe me money. I just got a new car. The iPhone 6 is coming out this week. All of these things are happening. My, my in-laws finally like me. The Seahawks won the Super Bowl. <laughs> Lord, please come back now. We don't hear that. Right? We usually hear the cry to God for him to come back in the midst of a trial, in the midst of suffering. We begin to wonder, when is he coming back? The car has broken down again. Your boss just told you that your job is being dissolved. You'll have no income for a few months. The dream that you've had for years comes to a crushing end. These are the moments of life when we wonder, is Jesus coming back? Is it today? And the simple truth is, it's hard times that make us long for Christ's return. This has been true in in our life in the past few months. There's been days and nights where we've lied awake wondering, when is Christ coming back? 
We've longed for the rescuer. So James is telling the church, and he's informing us and teaching us this morning that we're to be patient over these trials, he says. And this patience will gain maturity and completeness, another theme that's taught throughout this book. And he says, be patient until the process is crowned with the glorious coming of Jesus Christ. And then he points us now, after this, he points us to an illustration of the farmer. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. And these early and late rains come in October and and early November in Palestine. The author of this commentary says, uh, quote, The farmers still eagerly await these because they aid planting and make seed germination possible. And heavy rains come in December through February and finally spring rains through April and May. So why is the farmer able to wait for the produce? Well, he knows that this waiting is not useless or in vain. And as the waiting is taking place, he knows that a radical change is taking place, but he can't see it. A seed is in the ground, and and that seed is then growing all sorts of shoots. And, And when those shoots grow longer and larger, they grow up towards the topsoil, and they pop through. And these shoots finally make themselves seen and they turn into a plant and that plant will grow and and it'll grow blossoms and those blossoms will give fruit. And maybe this sounds very elementary to you this morning. But there's a point. There's a clear reason for the waiting in regards to the farmer. He knows there is so much going on under the soil. If the farmer could not hope for the rains, all the plowing, all the planting, all the weeding, all of it would be pointless. The farmer also knows that he is not the instrument of that change. It's the early and late rains. He cannot boast. He's not there under the soil, changing the seed, manipulating the seed. No, he's waiting with expected faith. And he has learned from experience what will happen in his field of service. He knows what's going to happen. You plant the seed, and the rain comes, and it brings growth, and it brings change. And so the farmer understands that there is a change that's happening during the waiting time. The question is, do we understand that in our own lives while we wait? The biblical view of of patience is not just waiting for the sake of waiting. It's a time in which God is working and changing us to become Mark Jesus Christ. The biblical view of patience involves radical change, like the seed that is planted in the ground and then grows and changes and then produces fruit. That is what patience and waiting does for the believer. Waiting is not about what you get when it's over. Waiting is what you become while you wait. And we miss that. We miss that because we're always thinking of something that's going to happen at the end. And yes, something does happen, but we miss all that happens during the waiting. And I want you to understand this morning, waiting has meaning. Waiting has purpose. God is producing a harvest in our lives. He wants the fruit of the Spirit to grow, and the only way he can do it is through trials and troubles. 
And did you notice in this passage, he calls it a precious produce. It's valuable. It's valuable. It's costly. It's, it's held in high esteem. This isn't just some small squash here. This is precious because it's the fruit that brings nourishment and sustenance. So do you celebrate the weight? When you're in those circumstances, do you celebrate that time? Do you rejoice in that God is working? Knowing that in patient waiting, you're not waiting for grace. In waiting, you're getting grace. And so James doesn't just leave us with this illustration only. No, he wants to begin and thrust into a clear pastoral teaching moment where he again zeroes in on what's most vital in the era of waiting. He continues in this passage. He says, You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the farmer isn't just sitting back, just waiting. No, he's busy. We're not to sell all of our belongings and gather our family and climb a mountain and wait for Christ's return. That's not what we're called to do. We're to be busy in service. This is what James talks about in his book earlier in chapter 2. And so he calls them here, these colleagues believers, to establish their hearts. And Paul Tripp, in his chapter from the power of words and the wonder of God, writes about our heart, and he defines it this way. He says, The Bible essentially divides you into two pieces, your outer man and your inner man. The outer man is your physical self. It's the house God has given you for your heart while you're here on earth. The Bible uses many words for the inner man, mind, emotion, soul, spirit, will. And these words all summarized by a big basket term, heart. When the Bible uses the term heart, it means the causal core of your personhood. The heart is your directional system. The heart is your steering wheel. Your behavior isn't caused by the situations and relationships outside of you. End quote. So if our heart is the steering wheel of our behavior, then we'd better be about the business of knowing it and strengthening it and establishing it. And so when James writes to establish our hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand, he's being very pastoral. And he's counseling us to be aware of our hearts because waiting, waiting exposes our hearts to what's truly going on. Waiting exposes the doubts that linger in our hearts. We begin to wonder, we begin to question the goodness of God. We begin to wonder if, in fact, he is truly with us and will follow through the promises that he's given to us. And we begin to wonder if, if he will make the provisions that he's promised to make us. And church, I want you to understand this morning, there is a war that is happening in our hearts during the periods of waiting. There's a war happening. And there's an enemy that is seeking to throw us off course, to direct our minds and our thoughts to doubt rather than to trust. The enemy is there, and he's not a silent observer, but he's active to deceive us into thinking that God is really not for us. He's against us. The enemy is there. He's whispering, God's not faithful. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't hear you. God's already moved on. And so James is telling us, don't listen to the enemy. Establish your hearts. 
And we need to fight the fight of faith, fight for our own heart. And we need to rejoice in the gospel, remembering the gospel. In Psalm 13, a psalm of David, he opens up himself to share the journey of trusting God. And in it, he displays his lack of trust. He says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say I have overcome him, and my adversaries will rejoice when I am shaken. And if he were to end there... I believe he'd be in sin because you cannot charge God with inequity and unfairness because you're always going to be wrong. No, he's pleading with God. And he doesn't end there. He writes this. He says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. Get this, church. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. And I love that psalm because it's real. That's where I'm at. I'm pouring myself out. God, I don't understand. This is a struggle. This is waiting. It's hard. But he doesn't end there. He comes full circle back to the gospel. My, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He knows the truth. And in that passage, what he's doing is essentially establishing his heart. He's strengthening his heart of what he knows is true. And what we learn also, I believe, is that we need to be drinking in the gospel. We need to be dwelling on the gospel. We need to be feeding ourselves in the rich nutrients of the gospel rather than giving way to doubt and fear. Our flesh wants us to give up. Better yet, our flesh wants to grumble at the perceived injustice that has been dealt to us. And are you good at fighting for your heart? Or are you letting your heart lead you? You hear this all the time, right? If you're on Facebook, if you're around anyone that's, that's not a Christian, you hear this phrase, just follow your heart. Folks, that's not biblical. That's not healthy. Scriptures say that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We cannot follow our heart because our heart doesn't naturally follow God. And so James is purposely writing the words, establish your hearts, strengthen or stand firm. And he communicates that waiting is to be done not in weakness or in defeat, but in strength and in action. It's as if James is saying to us this morning with great intensity, it's so close, it's so certain. Don't give up now, church. Do you want to learn patience? Since you have set your heart on becoming mature and complete, and since your hope for Christ's return is there, now choose to stand firm. Establish your hearts. We need to remember that in waiting We need to think on God's word. We need to remember the gospel. We need to memorize passages like Psalm 40, 1 through 3. It says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction of the miry clay, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. 
He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. And we need to remember the grace of God. We need to remind ourselves that the Lord is coming back soon. Perhaps today. And with every passing day, we're getting closer and closer to the day with Christ. The day when he returns for his bride. Amen? So James doesn't end there, though. I'm not done either. He tells us in verse 9 to do not grumble. Or do not complain. And this really cuts to the heart of all of us, right, if we're honest. This is the common sin that we faced in waiting. How often does this play out in our lives? The traffic is crazy. You need to get somewhere on time. And you think, it'd be better if people were driving and look in the rearview mirror and say, oh, there's Jeff. I should pull off. He needs to get where he has to go. You, you know, you want to show up at a restaurant and, and it's packed. And you want to hear, oh, there's Jeff. Let's clear off a table for him. Let's give the best service, the quickest service we most po- possibly can for his family. He's got things to do. Or how about this example? We've, we've experienced this a lot in the last few years. We want to enter an airport. And we have... Have people clear out of the way. We want everyone to go to the other side of security and we just walk through. I want to board the plane even though I'm not a Sky Elite member. And I want to get my seat. It all plays out, right? This is the area where we struggle, where the rubber meets the road in these little circumstances of life. And we don't want to wait. Can I say those are little experiences that expose a bigger need in our heart. And let me tell you, if all those things worked out for Jeff, that'd be Planet Jeff, and you wouldn't want to live there. Right, Katie? Aren't you thankful for that? And we begin to minimize the sin of complaining or grumbling so quickly. We think that if we were in complete control of our lives, that things would be going better, at least quicker. And so what we do is that we place ourselves as sovereign. Church, if you believe in the theology of the sovereignty of God, and I believe this is taught here, every moment of complaining is complaining against God. Think about that. If you believe in the theology of the sovereignty of God, that he is sovereign over all, then every moment of complaining is complaining against God. Your complaining is deeply theological. My complaining is deeply theological. It's clear evidence of dissatisfaction for the plan of Almighty God in our lives. And we need to own this. It's easy to sing on Sunday, great is thy faithfulness, and to believe it. To think in the words, to believe it and think, God, you are faithful in our lives. You supply for us. And then we walk out The sermon's done and we begin to complain to one another how slowly God is working in certain situations. 
And folks, those, are, those aren't struggles necessarily with our mouth. We may think it is. Those are struggles with our heart. Do you really believe that whatever God ordains is right? Do you really believe that? And again, I wish I could stand here this morning and, and say that I'm not in desperate need of God's refinement in my life and trusting his perfect timing. But this is where we live right now. Opening myself up to you this morning, we're, we're communicating to people that we're no longer in Sweden and they're natural and they're caring responses. What's next, guys? An innocent question. But you know what? I don't know. We, we want to know. We'd like to have a plan in place, but we don't, and so we wait. The sad fact in maybe your life and in those situations is that when we have to wait, our mouth displays our heart. And we begin to complain and we whine and we grumble that it shouldn't be this way. A thought gripped my heart this morning. Is my life a life of complaining or is it a hymn of praise? Is my life a life of complaint or complaining or, or am I him of praise? And if you're unsure, ask your spouse or ask a close friend. You know, what dominates your conversations? What dominates your heart in these times? Is it, is it complaining that God is not working the way you think he should or how quickly he should? Or is it a rejoicing of who he is and what he's done? And as, as God is asking you to wait, and the waiting means suffering, the waiting means pain, he has chosen this. He has chosen for us to live in a fallen world. Don't forget that. But in that, rejoice and rest in the grace of the King of all kings. Rest in the sovereignty of the Lord of all lords. So James continues, he says, do not grumble. And he says, do not grumble one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Why does James introduce the topic of judge? Very simply, I believe he wants the readers to realize the seriousness of how God views our little sin of complaining. Especially when it's launched at other believers. And he's warning us against complaining in which we blame one another. When we suffer in the midst of a trial, it's easy for our heart to run in an accusing tone and call everyone else out. And some of us have difficult marriages, frustrated dreams, demotions at work and hassle and hurts at home. We have high blood pressure and we have stress, you name it. And we become frustrated and, and have no patience, and then begin to complain against one another. And usually this plays out, and we complain to, other, to one another when we think we view them as seemingly having it better than us. 
but you don't understand what we're going through. And we complain and we, and we grumble about what God is doing in our lives, thinking that, well, they got it better than us. And James is teaching us in this passage, he's, he's warning us, he's saying that this type of communication of complaints and grumbling with others will not be tolerated by God. He says the judge is standing right at the door. The imminent return of the righteous judge is coming. And so James then gives further examples. He wants us to follow. He says the prophets there in verses 10 and 11. He says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And he's exhorting here believers to follow the example and the scriptural model of the prophets. And we could spend a lot of time this morning remembering from scripture the example of prophet after prophet. A few come to mind. Moses dealing with his grumbling detractors. And David fleeing Saul's death threats. Elijah and Mount Carmel before the prophets of Baal. The hardship of Jeremiah suffered at the hands of the kings of Judah. And Daniel, when he was thrown in the lion's den, excuse me, prophet after prophet experienced these trials and his sufferings. And James' point here is that the prophets suffered not because they did anything wrong, but because they were doing right. He says they spoke in the name of the Lord. And then he mentions Job in verse 11. We consider those blessed who remain steadfast, and you've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. So here's a man that went through a lot in his walk with the Lord. A man that God changed. Here's evidence here. I won't go through all the book of Job. We would be here till next week. Job 42 says, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things. And that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes." God is after a radical heart change in times of waiting, in times of suffering. And in Job's life, it happens. He reforms Job. He, he makes him a new man. So James here ends, and I know we're going quickly to this last part, but he ends verse 11 with a, a declaration of sorts. He says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful. We have other examples in Scripture. Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. And Psalm 103, 8, a very similar verse. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness. But James here, James goes another step further than those two passages. And, and he says, one commentary says, that he coins a word in Greek that does not occur anywhere else in the New Testament. James literally writes, the Lord is full of compassion. 
Church, God is more than compassionate. He is filled with compassion. What an awesome thought. And so the waiting in our lives is not there to block compassion and mercy. No, the waiting is a vehicle of compassion and mercy in our lives. And what we need most, what I need most, is refinement. That's the story of Job. And at the end of Job, he's a different man. Think about this with me. Life, without struggle and difficulty, is bland and tasteless. Did you hear me? Life, without struggle and difficulty, is bland and tasteless. Malcolm Muggeridge, uh, English journalist and author of a book, Jesus Rediscovered, talks about this. He says, suppose you eliminated suffering, what a dreadful place the world would be. I would almost rather eliminate happiness. The world would be the most ghastly place because everything that corrects the tendency of this unspeakable little creature, man, to feel over-important and over-pleased with himself would disappear. He's bad enough now, but he would be absolutely intolerable if he never suffered. Our refinement, our sanctification would be impossible without suffering and trouble. All of our character building is largely dependent upon suffering. The hard truth is that no wise person would seek to be exempt from a healthy discipline of trouble. And here's what I mean. God allows suffering in our lives for our betterment and for his glory. We cannot run from suffering. We dare not run from suffering. But wait within it for what God is doing in our lives. So I want to end this morning by giving you two ways suffering works in our lives. Two ways suffering works in our lives. First, suffering increases my trust in God. Suffering increases my trust in God. And we seldom trust God as much as we, as we should unless we're suffering or in trouble in the midst of waiting. And when I'm in trouble and suffering, it seems to sharpen my focus and increase my grip on God. When all of my attempts to get myself out of trouble fail, I'm forced to trust in the one who can truly help me. So suffering increases my trust in God. Second, suffering causes me to display God's glory. Suffering causes me to display God's glory. Paul reminds us in Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Glorifying God means showing by our actions and our attitudes that God is glorious to us that he is valuable, that he's precious, that he's desirable and satisfying. And the greatest way to show that someone satisfies your heart is to keep on rejoicing in them when all other supports for your satisfaction have fallen away. When you keep rejoicing in God in the midst of suffering, it shows that God, and not other things, is the greatest source of your joy. And I want your church, I want you as a church to be known as a people who hope in the Lord when trouble comes.
I want your church to embrace suffering with patience and faith, knowing that God is sovereignly in control and desires the very best for you. I want your church to know one another so well that when someone is suffering in your church and going through trials, you minister to them, you serve them, you love them, and you pray for them. Part of the reason you join a local church is so that you don't suffer alone. If you've been attending Redemption Bible Church for some time and you're not a member, you're missing out on the program that God designed for a purpose. Think about this. Your trials are not just for you. They are gifts of counsel and comfort to others. I want your church to be more than Sunday morning meeting for worship. And I'm praying that God will use this time this morning in his word for honor and glory through Redemption Bible Church. And when God brings us into circumstances of trials and suffering, and we're waiting. My prayer is that you, as Redemption Bible Church, show God's glory in the midst of it and minister one to another and patiently wait for God in that situation. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning. God, I thank you for the trials and the suffering that you have allowed to come into our lives. And we know that there's purpose there. God, remind us in the midst of it. God, you've built us in a way as humans that we need constant reminders. God, you've built us in a way that we need each other. God, help us in the midst of those trials and waiting and suffering. Help us to trust you. Help us to run to your word, to be in your word, to read your word, to memorize it. Help us, Father, as a church. I pray for this church that that people are aware of one another aware of what's going on in their lives and that they seek to minister to one another in the midst of these trials and suffering and waiting. Father, I praise you for the local church. What incredible, powerful ministry you've given us here in this world. I praise you for this church. I praise you for the men that serve this church, the elders that you've placed here, the deacons, all those in leadership, all those that serve week in and week out. Father, I praise you for the man that you've raised up to lead this church. I praise you for Pastor Ryan. God, I thank you that you're not done with him, that you're still refining him. And Father, I ask that you continue to grow him, and as he grows and walking with you, he can clearly and lovingly teach and help others grow the same. Father, as we leave this place today, as we finish with the potluck time of fellowship, and as we leave this building, I pray that you will encourage us in our daily walk, that you will encourage us to reach out to our neighbors, to our coworkers, that we're quick to share our testimony, quick to share what you're doing in our lives. And we do this all, God, for your honor and your glory. We ask it all in Jesus' name, amen.